If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to John chapter 7. I would assume that if you were to go around to the universities that we just prayed for, to a number of people on the streets, to people sitting in pews all across our country today, this moment even, and you were to ask those people about Jesus, a vast majority of them would have no problem affirming his teaching. They would have problems with parts of his teaching, no doubt, but the vast majority of his teaching, they, they, would, they would have the highest of praise for. You want to talk about forgiveness. We're all about forgiveness. Our, our culture is all about a form of love. We need more kindness. Our society is lacking a great deal of civility. All of these things are good as far as they go. They might not like all of it, but generally, Jesus appears to be a wonderful teacher. His miracles, on the other hand, not, not so much. We, we can do away with some of the miracles. Maybe we would explain them away. Maybe they would be uncomfortable with the idea that miracles can happen at all. There are probably just some myths that people created because he was helping people become self-aware or psychologically more advanced or who knows what the deal is. Who, who knows why the early church came up with these miracles, but we know that we doubt them in our day and age. And whether or not that is accurate, portrayal of, of the world outside, whether or not that is an accurate portrayal of people in pews all across the country, I don't know. But I do know that that is precisely the opposite of what people were like in Jesus' day. See, people in Jesus' day had no problem with his miracles. They had no problem with the report of his miracles. As these reports spread, the New Testament gives absolutely no indication that people stood up and say, well, I can't believe that he actually did those things. As a matter of fact, they seem to be all for the fact that he did those things. Even people who were his opponents didn't deny that he did miracles. They simply attributed them to other people besides God. They said, well, it's only by the master of demons that you cast out demons. They didn't deny it. Instead, what you have throughout the pages of the New Testament is a frank recognition that he actually did the things that he said he did or that these reports were vast and widespread. Even secular authorities, when they talk about Jesus, talk about the fact that he was a worker of great wonders. But they had a lot of concerns about his teaching. They had a lot of concerns about the things that came out of his mouth. As part of the crowd said, as we read from verse 12 last week, there was much muttering about him that the people said, well, he's a good man, but others said, no, he's leading the people astray. He's deceiving people. That is his teaching about God or his teaching about himself, his teaching about salvation, his teaching about how to handle the Sabbath, all of this. People were worried not so much that he was faking miracles or that he wasn't performing miracles or even what his miracles meant. Their problem with Jesus wasn't the miracles. Their problem with Jesus was his teaching. These are not incidental concerns for us today. We, we face many of the same concerns that people in that day did. We at Crossway put people in positions of authority to teach. Immediately, we ought to be reminded of James 3. James reminds us that not many should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. But we have to place people in positions of authority to teach. But it is a grave authority. It is a grave responsibility because life and death are at stake. Indeed, eternal life and death are in the balance because bad teaching doesn't just mess up with the intellectual priorities in someone's life. Yes, they can 
possibly hurt them and lead them down a path of misery and guilt and shame for the rest of their lives. But they can also do much worse, not only taking away their life here on earth, but taking away their life eternally and leading to punishment before a holy God who is not very sanguine about sin. And what's more, Crossway is not the only source of teaching that you come across. I know that most of my parishioners, most of the people that serve under me have my sermons playing in their home on a steady, steady loop. I know that this is the case. And people say, is that a cat or something? No, no, that's just my pastor. It's okay. But I, I rightly recognize that you're going to come across other teachings. As a matter of fact, it's impossible to. You ought to be. You ought to be listening to other sermons. You ought to be reading good books. You ought to be sitting in front of your computer reading things online where people are telling you what is true and what is not. Sometimes you want them to tell you what is true and what is not. Sometimes they just kind of force it upon you. But either way, you are receiving teaching no matter where you turn. So the same questions that have come up to the people about Jesus come up to us continually. How do we know if we are dealing with a good teacher or a charlatan? How do we know if we are hearing the truth or just some sinner's opinion? What are the characteristics, the necessary qualities that make a teacher good and right? How did Jesus defend himself against such problems? Turn with me, if you would, to John 7. We'll begin reading in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. <clears throat> and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, and you are angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of our God. How can we tell whether someone is a good teacher, a right teacher? The first point I would like to make is the good teacher's commendation is God's wisdom. The good teacher's commendation is God's wisdom. The people make an odd complaint at the very beginning. How is it that this man is learning when he's never studied? Where did this come from? There's a, there's a sense in that question, not only of amazement and of marveling, but almost of, of denouncing the teaching. He, he can't have this kind of teaching because he, he clearly has no learning. Jesus' answer is straightforward and is typical for him, especially in John. My teaching is not my own. I didn't come up with this on my own. I'm simply giving you what I got from the Father and what the Father has given to me. This is the wisdom that Jesus always provides the people, whether it's about worship or eternal bread or life with the Father. All of it is given to him by the Father, and therefore, he doesn't have to learn like others do. 
And listen, I, I want to implore you. It would be hypocritical of me to say that education is not important. I think education is tremendously important. As a matter of fact, we ought to be shocked that so many ministers, so many pastors, eschew any type of education at all, thinking that it's a foolish thing to do. It is a problem for churches, and the church will languish until that problem is solved. But we are never, ever to confuse the difference between education and the truth. Just because someone is well-educated doesn't mean that they understand God's wisdom, and it doesn't mean that he or she should be commended to anybody simply because they have a row of numbers behind their name. That's fine. You have a PhD. That's great. It doesn't mean that you know how to handle God's word at all. I know. I've read a lot of their work. Most of them don't know, not most, a lot of them don't know how to handle God's word at all. It doesn't mean that you are a source of truth. Our condemnation is not our commendation is not that we have jumped through hoops, not that we have received degrees, not that a seminary has checked off a couple of boxes saying that we are qualified. Our commendation comes because we have the wisdom of God at our fingertips. It is the teaching and the preaching of God's word. If you think that I should be listened to or anyone else simply because they have a degree from someplace that says that they are qualified for something, you need to readjust the way you think about teaching and preaching in the church. First, our Lord had absolutely none of it. Second, the apostles had almost none of it. Paul was taught. Paul was incredibly well-educated. And many godly and helpful men throughout the church have had great education. And it's good, but it is not necessary. Peter and John certainly didn't. In Acts 4.13, after they've boldly proclaimed the gospel in front of people and caused a stir, they were taken in front of the, the leaders of the Jews. And leaders of the Jews have have questioned Peter and John, and they said in 4.13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. We ought to have more men who have less letters after the end of their name and more men who can boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ so that people stand astonished at it. Much better to have the latter. And what's more, even though Paul was indeed educated, he is also capable of saying this in 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what Paul means, as we read last week in Gospel Deeps in our community groups, is not that that is not profound, but that it is quite, quite simple. He didn't need to rely on his flourishment of education. He didn't need to rely on his rhetorical abilities. He relied on the simple proclamation of the gospel. Don't be fooled by commendations that a worldly institute can give to people. Seek the commendation of only God's good wisdom. And when you find a man or a woman who is able to carry that truth well, who is able to handle the wisdom that God has given well, then you know that their commendation is indeed from God. Secondly, the good teacher's confirmation is God's will. Look again at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus says, you want to know whether or not 
what I'm saying is from me or is from God the Father, if you really want to know, what you need to do is you need to know God's will. If you know God's will, then you can check what I'm saying. You can confirm what I'm saying. If you're going to decide whether what he's saying is right or wrong, good or bad, helpful or hurtful, you need to know God's will. This is, in the end, the only way you can confirm whether something is right or whether something is wrong. That is the only thing that we can do. The only place where we can finally understand what God wants from his people, what he needs for them to do, what he wants them to know about himself, what he wants them to know about themselves, how he wants them to love, how he wants them to hate, how he wants them to worship, how he wants them to pray. Ultimately, all of those things, all of them, can only be truly known by men and women in this world through the word of God. All of these things, otherwise come only from the opinion of people whose perception of God and the world and it's certainly of themselves have been tainted by the fall. We need outside revelation to come to us so that we can have clarified for us who we are, who God is, and how to act in the world. So Jesus is pleading with people, if you want to know whether I'm speaking for God or just for myself, know God's will. Acts 17, 10 through 11. The same standard is applied to Paul. Paul is chased, chased out of Thessalonica and he ends up in Berea and he presents the gospel to the Berean Jews. And in Acts 17, 10 and 11, we read this. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were indeed eager to hear the word, but they weren't so eager to hear the word that they weren't gonna test whether this apostle Paul was actually speaking the word of truth. They heard the word eagerly, but they double-checked. They trusted, but they verified. And friends, if this is true for Paul, and if it's true for Jesus, then it is true for all of us. To put this another way, Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. To get true and lasting wisdom, you have to know the fear of the Lord. To know the fear of the Lord, you have to know what he is like and what he does. To know that, you have to know his revelation. And to get that, friend, you have to read his word. You have to read his word. In order to confirm whether what someone is saying is true or false, you have to read the word. How much of the prosperity gospel would be nullified in an instant if people were willing to pick up their Bibles and open them and read them? So, If you want to know whether a teacher is good or not, you have to confirm whether or not they're teaching God's words. See if they match up. And that includes me as well. Now, Jesus said this solely for the crowd's purpose. He didn't need to know whether he was teaching God's word. I do. You are to check me on this, not just for your own purposes, certainly for that, but for me as well. I need to know where I'm going wrong. I need to know where I am unclear. I need to know where I have fallen short of the word of God. And no doubt it happens at times. Be noble like the Bereans who seek diligently in the scriptures to see if these things are so. So many people out in the world simply want to give their opinions to say what they think is true but they have no reason to suspect that it's true except for their own small-minded ruminations on the nature of God or on the nature of man. Everyone who rejects portions of God's word and rejects revelation about himself gets lumped into this category. If you're just speculating, then just be clear. You're speculating. Otherwise, rely upon the word of God. 
We don't need to guess at these things. We can read God's word, we can know God's word, we can hear God's word, and through that we expect God to show us who he is and to confirm good teachers. Third, the good teacher's contribution is God's glory. What I mean by that is not that they are contributing to God's glory. God is glorious, and nothing we do adds or subtracts from his glory. But what good teaching does is increase the recognition of God's glory amongst his people. This is what the New Testament means when it says we give him glory. It means we are giving him the glory that he is due. We are acknowledging the glory that is already there. And good teaching always does this. It always points toward the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the task given to Jesus. This is the main problem with our sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The nature of sin is not treating God as glorious as he truly is. And when you don't treat God as glorious as he truly is, you sin in that. All sin is traceable back to that one thing, not giving God the glory that he has deserved. Because Jesus is indeed a man, Part of his overturning of sin is leading a life where he gives God the glory that he is due in manhood. Now, Jesus does indeed receive glory from God, but he doesn't receive this from himself. He doesn't act in such a way that he accrues glory to himself. John 8.50 Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. God the Father will give Jesus the Son glory. Jesus will be glorified, but Jesus is not going out of his way to get glory for himself. He is working very, very hard to give God the Father glory. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ did indeed get glory, but he didn't seek it of his own accord. It was given to him like so many other things from the Father. And just as Jesus was sent, so we are sent. Jesus says, the one who is a good teacher gives glory to the one who sent him. We, like Jesus, have been sent into the world. Just later in John's uh, gospel in chapter 17, he says, as you sent me into the world, Father, so I send them into the world. Just as Jesus was sent to redeem us, So we are sent to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And through him, we are to bring glory to Jesus Christ. This is the task of all preaching and teaching. To acknowledge that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen to how Paul puts this in the book of Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What is our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, be, be very careful and beware of those preachers and teachers who accrue more glory to themselves than they do to Jesus Christ our Lord. They do this by being overly jokey. They do this by saying outlandish things. 
They do this by always holding themselves up as the hero of the story or by keeping the spotlight on what God has done through them. Be very, very weary, leery of anyone who proclaims that through my ministry, I've saved hundreds of thousands of people. You are accruing glory to yourself and not to Jesus Christ. It is a clear mark of a charlatan, of one who is using the good things of God for their own ends, of one who is simply fleecing the sheep that they might be clothed themselves. The point of all good preaching and teaching within the church is simply this, to bring glory to God. That is it. As John Piper would say, missions exist because worship doesn't. All of it, everything we do, the giving of money, the offering of prayers, the singing of praises, the preaching of his word, is to glorify God. This is, as the Westminster Confession said, the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It is not to promote a therapeutic guide to life, 10 steps to better pet ownership or nine steps to better crock potting. I'm all for that. I'm all for it. You need to have those things. Better crock potting is a beautiful thing in this world and the world would be much better without it or without bad crock potting, much better with better crock potting. But that's not the goal of the church. That's not what we're gathered here for. We're not gathered here for you. You are here to worship God. It is to give him glory and honor and to train us on how we can give him more glory and honor. That is the contribution that good preaching and teaching would always make. We serve a God who is holy thrice over. Listen, God is greater than anything that you can imagine. He's more magnificent. He's larger. He's more powerful. He has created the entirety of the universe in a word. He upholds them with the power of his voice. He can hold the universe in his hand, so to speak. Not only is he, is he the Lord and creator over all of the universe, but every atom and molecule across the entirety of the universe, he moves and designs according to his will to accomplish everything that he has foreordained from before the foundation of the world. He is so immensely powerful that we cannot understand and fathom it. Our brains can't even come to grasp with the, with the depth and the width of our own universe, simply the size of it. We can calculate it out, but the numbers make no sense to us. We can write them down, but there's no way for our pea-sized brains to comprehend what is going on. And yet God is mindful of us. This same magnificent, all-powerful, glorious God sent his son to die for our sins. We are worthless people. We're, as, as Luther was very fond of saying, worms. We're nothing but worms. And yet God in his love has sent his son to die for our sins. He has raised him from the grave for our justification so that anyone who places their hope and trust in him would understand who God is, would understand that he has received eternal life and might live before God forever in glory. Receiving all of the benefits of his glorious nature, being showered upon them, standing in the midst of his glory and worshiping him forever and ever, understanding with every passing moment more and more and more of his glory. My goodness. 
Why do people preach other things? Friends, you cannot settle for less. There is nothing greater than that. That, that, is, that is eating peach pie when there is beautiful chocolate dessert there for you. Okay? Everyone knows how gross peaches are and how beautiful chocolate is. To, to preach something besides the glory of God is to settle for something that is so worthless. It is to, to settle for something that is so, so meager and meek that one wonders why people even get up and speak. Sit down and be quiet. Preach the gospel. Finally, four, the good teacher's constitution is God's holiness. Jesus finishes by saying the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood. He means in him there is no unrighteousness. There's nothing wrong in him. He is perfect in all his ways. This is what we mean by constitution. He is, it's what sums him up, what makes him who he is, what, what he is made of. Jesus says the one who does this perfectly, there is no unrighteousness in him. And we know that this is tricky, especially for us to apply to ourselves. But frankly, all of these things have been tricky for us to apply to ourselves. We don't know God's word as well as we should. We don't understand God's wisdom as much as we should. We certainly don't seek God's glory as much as we should. And we are not as holy as we ought to be. But we need to understand the depth of what Jesus is saying here about himself. Because he is claiming quite a big deal. He is saying that he is holy and totally without sin and perfectly holy in everything that he does. That he has never sinned by omission or commission. That he has never done what he shouldn't do, nor has he ever failed to do what he should do. That he always speaks and answers correctly, not only in substance, but also in tone. That his judgments are always right, and they are rightly proportioned. That his anger has never been misplaced. That his mercy has never been ill-spent. That he rightly uses time that he has been given, and is a good steward over everything that has been entrusted to him. He is righteous and perfect in everything that he does. Again, this is helpful for us, not only to see the glory of Jesus, but for us to see how we ought to act and the high, high value of righteousness in the life of a preacher and a teacher of the gospel. Now, we can't fully accomplish it, but we should expect some of it. And to think that because forgiveness is meant to be handed out to every Christian, and it is, to think that you can sin time and time again and the forgiveness of Christ will cover that, and it can be, is not the same thing as to say that forgiveness is always given to preachers and teachers of his word and they are never then therefore disqualified from preaching and teaching. As a matter of fact, the holiness and the glory of God demands that. If preachers and teachers continually fall, if preachers and teachers continually show signs of anger, of lust, of greed, of drunkenness, they are disqualified from being a preacher and teacher precisely because they don't meet the qualifications of righteousness that Jesus is laying out here that Paul reaffirms in both 1 Timothy and in Titus. It doesn't mean that you gain a full holiness, but it does mean that you have a reputation for it, and it means you don't walk around in the flagrancy of your sin. This goes for all teachers, by the way, not just those who preach and teach. 
By the way, this is why the local church is so terribly important. All those teachers, all those preachers who preach better than I do on TV, no doubt, this world is filled with them. You can find them. I'm, I'm not the best at what I'm doing here. You will find people who are more eloquent, who can stir your hearts a little bit better than I can, who will, who will get you into the word and get you excited about it more than I can. You have no idea what happens to those people and who those people are when the cameras shut off. You have none. And you have no way of finding out. You have no way of finding out what happens to those televangelists when the cameras turn down. You have no idea what happens to those authors when they're not penning those wonderful books. You have no idea what those people on the podcast who speak so eloquently and so piously are like when they go home to their wife and kids. But you can me. You can get to know me. You can call me up and we can go out for coffee. You can talk to my wife and my kids and my friends. You can see if I'm the kind of man that I appear to be or if it is just that, appearances. You can ask them questions. If we take seriously that a good teacher, a right teacher, has righteousness in their lives, then you have to, have to assign yourself to a local church where you can actually know that. I don't understand how people think that they can sit at home and be fed the word of God by a man that they will never meet and they will never know and they can never understand. This is not just a case for local churches. It is a case for small local churches. The constitution of a teacher must be one of holiness, not of debauchery or flagrant sin. What Jesus then goes on to do in the following verses is give an example of exactly how this works out. Jesus looks at them and says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Moses gave you the law. You guys don't keep the law. So, so you're coming after me because I, I did something that you don't like. Why is it that you're seeking to kill me? Because I don't keep the law, but you don't keep the law either. So, so tell me again why you're seeking to kill me. Now at this point in time, the crowds clearly are being restrained by the authorities. They are in fear of the authorities, but they don't know how deep the authorities' antagonism toward Jesus goes. Jesus knows. That's why he says, you're trying to kill me. They don't know, and so they say, who is trying to kill you? Jesus responds to them and is going to make clear to them this poor teaching of both the authorities in Jerusalem and the poor understanding that they have of the word of God. He says to them in verse 21, I did one work and you marvel at it. That one work is clearly because he's in Jerusalem now, referring back to the work in John chapter 5 where he healed the lame man who was lame for 38 years on the Sabbath. I healed one man. I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. And he says, hey, it wasn't really Moses. I understand that it was the fathers. You know, got to make sure we've dotting all our I's and crossing all our T's. But Moses gave you circumcision. Moses told you to circumcise on the eighth day. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. That is, simply by the numbers, there are going to be people who when the eighth day comes up are going to have to be circumcised on the Sabbath. That's a work. He says, that's a work. That is breaking the Sabbath. You are doing something there that you don't have to do. But in order to keep the law, you do it. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken. Notice what he's saying. You are breaking the law so that you can uphold the law. In other words, the requirement to circumcise somebody takes precedent over the requirement to take rest on that day. 
you know this. And circumcision is not a small thing to the Jews. This was the way in which we might call it a rite of, of perfection. It makes that person complete. They were kind of a member of the community. That little boy, that little baby was kind of a member of the community. They were kind of a Jew. But once circumcision has taken place, they are fully a Jew. They become part of the Jewish people. Jesus says, you do this and you break the Sabbath requirement because of it. But I make a person holy well. You make him complete through a symbol. I made him complete in reality. And you are so angry at me. Jesus says, you do this continuously. I did it one time, and I did it better than you did. Why are you angry at me? They commend themselves through their own wisdom and learning, not by God's wisdom. These teachers don't understand God's word, and therefore they are not confirmed by that word. These teachers seek their own glory through their own understanding and own interpretation of the law, and therefore are not contributing to God's glory but their own. And in all of this, they have misplaced their anger, both the crowds and the authorities, and they show that they are unrighteous. In other words, those who would here condemn Jesus for healing on the Sabbath demonstrate that the teaching to which they ascribe and the teachers who promote such ideas do not understand God's word, trust in authorities that are above God's word, seek their own interests and their own glory, and refuse to acknowledge their own unrighteousness before Jesus. In the end, the matter is very clear. They do not judge rightly, but they judge only according to what they can see with their eyes. They judge by the most brief of looks and appearances, and because they don't like what they see, because they don't like what they hear, it must be wrong. And friends, what Jesus is telling you is you've got to do better than that. You can't simply judge by what you do and don't like. Something is not right or wrong because it, it sits ill with your perception of the word, world. It is right or wrong as whether it fits with God's word. By knowing God's word, by insisting on it, by applying it, by judging ourselves in its lens, by growing steadily in holiness, we may be found to be those who judge not by our own abilities, brilliance, and illumination, by what we can see, but with the very eyes of God, enlightened by his word, and shooting and aiming for his glory. This is indeed what our teachers must aim at. Titus 1, 6-9 says this. Paul has commanded Titus to appoint elders or overseers in every church. And he says this in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. These might be the qualifications for an elder, but friend, there is absolutely nothing there that not every single one of you ought to apply to their lives. Every single one of us ought to seek to have that be true of us. That you would be, not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for grain, but you would be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
Is there anything that you would not want on that list as a Christian? Let us be those who strain for such qualities with passion and zeal and those who demand such out of the people who teach us God's word. Let us do this. For in these things and only in these things can Christ truly be glorified. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We pray that he is honored by our service today, by our praises, by our prayers, by the preaching of your word. May you be with those who are tasked with preaching and teaching your word, not just here at Crossway, but around the globe, every place where your name is lifted up. May you give them insight, understanding, clarity, and faithfulness. And what's more, be with your people who sit under your word. May you give them hearing, understanding, and a desire to put into practice what they hear. In all of this, may you be glorified. May the good teaching of your word lead your people to see you more clearly and deeply than before. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.